Good evening. If you have your Bibles, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to spend a little bit more time in chapter 15. Uh, we won't get through all of it today as well. Uh, we'll finish chapter 15 next week and, and maybe even chapter 16. At least I'm going to try. Um, but I'll, I'll let you know, and I'll let you know, Mike, too. Um, after we're done with 1 Corinthians, uh, Mike's going to go through the book of Judges. And so just so you guys know, that's what we're doing next. Now, last week we talked about Paul giving basically some the reality of the resurrection as well as witnesses of the resurrection. And we talked about a couple of things that were Witnesses. Do you guys remember what those things were that we talked about that were the witnesses of the resurrection? Who was paying attention last week? What's that? 500 people. There were actual people who were witnesses. So there was that testimony of the apostles and the multitudes that were witnesses. What was another one? That Christ died according to the scriptures. The scriptures giving you guys hints, okay. <laughs> Sounds like. Uh, so the scriptures were another witness of what Christ has done in the resurrection. So we had basically that tradition of the church. We had the witness of the scriptures. We had the testimony of the apostles and the others. And then Paul also had his own personal testimony of what Christ has done in his own life, the change and transformation that Jesus did. And we talked about how important that is, that we have that within our own life as well, to be able to acknowledge God has changed me. He is making me a new creation. He is transforming me to make me someone else, more like him. And those are all witnesses of the reality that Jesus is alive. And so now we're going to continue on that topic, starting at verse 12, and we'll read through verse 19. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, it's hard to imagine, but apparently there are some people who were a part of the Corinthian church who didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so what Paul is addressing here is what is foundational to the faith. 
He is trying to establish something that is very important. The idea of resurrection was one that was controversial. We talked about that last week, how the Jews had an idea of resurrection, the Greeks had an idea of resurrection, and they didn't see this as something that was very advantageous. We even see Paul in Acts chapter 23, when he's standing before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees, he talks about the resurrection and he does it on purpose because he's trying to start some issues within them. In chapter 23, verse 7, it says, And then Paul, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so there were some that said, no, there's no such thing as the resurrection. We don't believe in it. And that continued even after they became followers of Jesus Christ, which makes you wonder, how do you do that? How do you follow Jesus and not believe that he is risen from the dead? And Paul is saying, you don't. He's saying, you can't. He's saying, you need to acknowledge this about him, otherwise... Your faith, your faith is futile. It's meaningless. You're still in your sins. Which is a pretty heavy thing to say where we see now that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is connected also to the forgiveness of sins. That it's not just that he died for our sins. He died and he rose again. They're connected together. It's something that he links together because you can't separate them. If there is no risen Christ, then the sacrifice was not acceptable before God. It is that proof, evidence that God received that sacrifice that allows us to acknowledge that we have now the forgiveness of sins. And so we need to recognize that if that didn't happen, our faith is useless. It doesn't matter. And every now and then, we have these kinds of situations. And Paul is challenging just the fundamentals of the faith. This is central piece of the gospel. In fact, this is, has huge ramifications because everything is connected to this. This is kind of that center hub that if everything is connected to. If Jesus is not alive, then nothing works. None of this makes sense. None of this has any validity. It needs to have the approving hand of God on the resurrection. And so this is really something that is essential. And every now and then, you might have something like this or encounter something like this. Someone will tell me, in fact, I had a conversation uh, the other day about someone who said, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible. And I'm like, well, then where do you get your information about Jesus? Because basically the Gospels are the majority of information that we have that is historically accurate about Jesus. Everything else is minimal. I even just read a, a bit of an article. Someone sent me an email about this uh, actor who's an atheist who says, any, I forget his name, Chris... Ah, anyway, I could look it up. Um, I can see my text. They were just talking about how he was basically saying that he is a better Christian than many Christians. Ricky... Uh, Gervais. 
he said that he's a Christian and he's a better Christian than many Christians. And he talks about how, you know, Jesus was a good person and the moral teachings of Jesus we could all benefit from. But where does he get that idea of the moral teachings of Jesus? Where, where does he get that information? It's from the scriptures. But you see, it's those same scriptures that say that he rose from the dead. And so now what we see happening is you're picking and choosing which ones you believe. Well, I like this part, but I don't like that part. I'll accept this, but I don't accept this. And now we're on dangerous grounds because now we are determining what we want and we're kind of manipulating the gospel to our needs. And that's kind of what the Corinthians were doing. They wanted to be spiritual. They, we talked about all the gifts and how they were very charismatic, so to speak, in their gifts, but they didn't have love. They were very divided, that they were very divisive in their dealings with one another. And Paul is saying, how does this work? How can you pick and choose what you want? And here, once again, the focus of the resurrection is very, very important. If there is no resurrection, he gives a number of things that there's problems with. He says, first of all, then even Christ did not rise. If there's no resurrection, then how could Jesus rise from the dead if there's no such thing? The second thing he says is their preaching is useless. What good is it to talk about Jesus if he's not alive? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have any value. The third thing he says we're liars. We're, we're bearing false testimony. We're false witnesses because we're going around telling everyone that Jesus is alive. And if he's not, then we're not telling the truth. And you see, all these things are building up on what he's saying as far as the importance of the resurrection. He says also that your faith is futile. That means it's empty. It's worthless. You see, our belief in Jesus is worthless if he is not alive. It is worthless. Now those are heavy words. Those, those should make us stop and go, well, that's pretty heavy. That's how important this is. This is how central the resurrection is to Christianity. Your faith means nothing if he's not alive. Now, there's one other Actually, two more things that he talks about. Before we go on to those things, why would our faith be futile if Jesus is not alive? Why do you think? No hope. No hope. Hope for what? Heaven. Hope for heaven. Hope for life that continues. You see, if Jesus is not alive, then this is it. This is all we've got. And Christ's whole message was that this isn't it. That we're not to let our hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. But if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you might be also. How could he say any of that? That means absolutely nothing if he is not alive. There is no place after. There is nothing to hope for. Our life is here, and that's why he says we're uh, to be most pitied. Later on, he says he might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If Christ isn't alive, there is no hope. Now, we need to flip that around. 
because if indeed Christ is alive, oh man, there's hope. There is hope that is, well, we'll get into that. That's the good part. He also says that those who have died, he says fallen asleep, and that means they have died, they've died without hope. There's no hope for them. They're lost. They died and that's it. And what a tragic thing that is. Those who have lost people who they love, the idea of them dying and just having no life afterwards is a haunting thought. It's a haunting thought. He also says that if Christ is not risen, then we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, why would he say that? Why are, why are we to be pitied more than all men if Christ is not alive? Why do you think? Not gain anything? Because you guys are here instead of at an angel game or, you know, watching American Idol or whatever it is you watch. You, you're, you're spending time on something that doesn't matter. Might as well play bingo, you know. If you play bingo, that's fine. I'm not putting bingo down. But the whole idea is if Christ isn't alive, then all this is meaningless. And that'd be terrible. We're gathered here to, to do what? It's meaningless. We, we would be pitied because we are spending our lives in a way that is useless. Which should make us also think that how many people don't believe the Christ and don't know that he is alive and maybe they're the ones that really should be pitied because they are not living in the life that God has available to them. And so... As he discloses these things, this is more than just following the teachings of a religious person. This is more than just believing in the things that Jesus taught as a good teacher. Paul is telling them, Corinthians, you need to get in the game. You need to recognize that this is to be your perspective. This is to be the lens that you look through and that you live your life with, that Jesus is alive, that there is hope, that you have a purpose that is greater than this life itself. You gotta understand that and you gotta get with it. You know, the book of Corinthians has been a, a brutal book. At least it has for me. It's been like the UFC, you know, of Christianity. You know, we had the octagon, and I mean, there was a few Sundays there when I was just sweating. I was going to tap out, you know. Okay, oh, I can't talk about this anymore. I'm getting stares. And I've had a number of people talk to me, both good and some a little bit not so good, you know, questioning things. And just, I know some have felt it's come down pretty heavy because Paul is getting heavy. He is telling them, you guys, you need to change your perspective. And he's telling us that as well. He's telling us to, to get the right frame of mind. We are talking about Jesus being alive, risen from the dead, and that affects you. And we're going to look at the ways that that affects us. He's going to go on and he's going to list some things, how the resurrection has put some things in motion. Starting at verse 20. We'll read through verse 28. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
This has happened. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When, the hand, when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. The resurrection of Jesus has set the wheels in motion. It has started this wheel turning that's going to affect us and it affects all of eternity. It's put into motion something that is an unstoppable set of events. And it's setting about the future that God is bringing about and that we are to have a confident expectation are going to be taking place. In other words, the clock is ticking. When Jesus rose from the dead, the clock started ticking, saying God is going to accomplish these things. And we'll talk about those things in just a minute that Paul lists out. But think of what this means, because as Alex said earlier, giving us hope, that's the whole point of this. Hope is something that we can think about, something that we can put confidence in, something that we wait longing for. Talking earlier, and Denise was on you know, her Easter vacation now, and Tuesday she thought it would never come. She was hoping today would come. And now today has come, and she gets to enjoy that vacation. You see, you're hoping, you're waiting for that because you're going to then get to enjoy that time. Well, the wheels are in motion, and God has started something that is going to take place. That vacation is coming. That vacation that's better than any vacation is coming. Better than Maui for three weeks on the beach. You, you, your imagination runs wild and it won't even touch what is waiting for us. And it's in motion. You see, we have that expectation. We have that hope. This is something of substance, and it is supposed to change our direction and our focus. As he puts this in motion, it's supposed to have an effect on us, the things that we do and how we live. As he talks about these events that are unfolding, first of all, he says that Christ is raised, the first roots. This is the beginning, and we are to follow. He talks about how we are also going to be raised. And later on, we're going to talk next week in verses 35 down about what that looks like, the resurrection of the body, and, and talk about that a little bit more. But Christ is the first fruits, and then we follow right behind him, following his example and his resurrection. He tells us in verse 24 that he's going to destroy all dominion, authority, and power. And even though we live in a world with 
unjust government systems, sickness and death, their days are numbered. Now think about that. Think about the fact that all the corruption that you are aware of, and there is so much more that we are not aware of. Think of the children who have been abused and taken advantage of. Think of economic systems that have been used to, to bring about power and to oppress people. All the things that we see that are unjust, that have caused problems, sickness and death itself, the days are numbered. Every evil that's being done Every abuse that's taking place is going to be done away with. In fact, Jesus already has the deed and says, I'm coming back. I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to take care of this. And so he's talking about all these things coming to an end. All those things, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That's something that it's hard to imagine because this is all we know. This has been, you know, our focus. This has been what we have put our faith in. And so he's really trying to get us to change what we put our faith in because this isn't, it's just a matter of time before these things happen. When, we don't know, but it's going to take place. And when he takes over, this is our hope that he is going to set things right. You see, our hope isn't that we're going to get the right president. The hope isn't that the Congress is going to all agree and do the right thing. The hope isn't that solar power is going to clean up the nation. Whatever, you know, you fill in the blanks. Hope isn't for these things. Our hope is that Jesus is going to make things right. Why? Because he is alive. Because he conquered death. And if he can conquer death, he's going to bring all these things about that are necessary to come about. In verse 26, he goes on and he says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because of Adam's humanity, humanity was introduced. It was something that was formed. Because of Adam and the fall, our bodies went to dust. It wasn't meant to be that way. We, we died. We decayed. We, we fell into this corruption. Because of what Adam did, it brought death. And death was something that was foreign. It was something that was unnatural. It was something that wasn't supposed to be a part of our life. But now it is. And in fact, it is the thing that we fear the most. It is the thing that we can't get past. It is the last enemy that we have to face. Death and through Christ, that's going to be changed so that there will no longer be this destruction, this pain, and this death of humanity. Humanity is going to be rescued from death itself. And, you know, we have a lot of enemies, don't we? I mean, we have a lot of things. This week, you've probably gone through things that have been difficult. <laughs> I hear amens through groans. <laughs> they might be physical. They might be financial. 
They might be emotional. They might be spiritual. You, you might have the struggle that's taking place in your life. You're battling over these things. Can't make the, the bills. Feeling depressed. Have this sin in my life that I, I just can't get rid of. Something that you're battling through. This, this enemy that you're facing and you're tackling. And you see, all these things will one day come to an end. One day we won't battle these things any longer. You know, we're not going to have to, to deal with those struggles of lust. Because when you're dead, you don't lust. You just don't. You decompose, you know. And when you're dead, you don't worry about how much money's in the bank. You don't care about those things. All these little battles are going to not matter. But there is one that still does, and that's death. The struggles are small compared to death that we have to face. And that's what we are struggling with. That's what we are fighting through. But you see, that death that is the big battle, Jesus has just brought victory. Martin Luther wrote of this about death. He says, death is called the greatest and last enemy because all others point to him. And even when we rid ourselves of the others, death still remains and holds us captive. When man is buried, flesh and blood and with all their lusts must come to an end. These can no longer assail us. Thus, these enemies can deal with us only here on earth. After that, they have to cease. Death, however, survives all the others and holds us in its power so that we must remain captive forever and can't escape. But if we believe and have trusted Christ, we have this consolation here. We have a Lord who can and will do away also with this last enemy. Tear down the feather, fetters and bonds to pieces and furthermore slay and exterminate this enemy of death. You see, before Christ, we were stuck. There was an oppression that was on us that we could not get out of. And we tried through religion, we tried through trying different ways to make ourselves live as long as we can, but we could not get out of the escape of death. It was there, it was oppressive, and it was too strong. It bound us forever. And then came Jesus, who broke the chains, who liberated us, and destroyed this enemy that was too great for us to destroy and set us free so that now we can live like he lives. And you see, how important is this resurrection? How vital is this to us who believe? This is everything. This is like being stuck in prison for the rest of your life or being set free. 
Now, if that's the case, if, if we are free from this burden, from this oppression, from all these little enemies and this big enemy, what should our lives look like? How should we present ourselves? How should we live in this world? What should it change? What should it do to us, in us, for us? Well, let's look. Let's talk about that. We sit now in a different relationship. A different relationship with death because of Jesus. That's why Paul wrote later on in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's almost mocking. You don't hold me anymore. Na 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 na. It's just saying you got nothing on me. It's changed our relationship. It's as if we. It's as if we have one leg in the grave, because we're all still going to die, physically. But the other leg is stepping out. And not only is it stepping out, and more importantly, is there is a hand reaching and pulling us out, and that is the hand of Jesus, who is not in the grave any longer, who is able to pull us out because he is out. And so we still have just one foot in the grave, but we are already almost all the way out. That's our position. And Christ, who is out is pulling us out, is getting us out of this pit that haunts and burdens us. We have this confident hope. And when Jesus brings about the end of death, we will sit with him without adversary. And it's hard to imagine because the victory of Christ will one day, we'll be able to share in his victory and enjoy the peace that it brings with complete integrity, it will be done. The battle will be done. It also means that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. He's conquered death. The sin that brought us death has been conquered. Now think about that just for a minute, because when you start getting condemned about the things in your life that aren't right, not as they should be, you need to understand that there is someone who is outside of the grave who has already dealt with this completely, completely. There is nothing that can keep sin from holding you if you will trust in Jesus and the resurrection. You guys, this is incredible news. This is to set us free from the bondages that we have fallen into. You might say, you know, my, my family has a history of alcoholism. My family has a history of addiction. My family has this. Jesus has broken those chains. Yes, without Christ, you would be subject to those things like never before. But now you have hope. You have power to get you out of that pit. The power is in the person of Christ who has demonstrated that he is all-powerful. That all power has been given to him in heaven and in earth. And he is able to bring this victory to us. So if the most powerful thing that you and I face is death, 
and Christ has rendered it helpless. What are we left then? We're left with freedom. And now we come to our understanding of where we sit positionally. Why if Christ has set us free, we're free indeed. Why Paul could live a life as if nothing could stop him or hinder him because he was free. He was Christ's slave and so he was free to everything else. And that should give you and I more than hope. It should give us confidence and a confident anticipation that we are living with now purpose. We are living with hope. Everything in us longs for that day when this mortality will put on immortality. We'll get to that next week. Verse 27, he says, For he has put everything under his feet, which means Christ is a victor. When a king would go in and he would conquer a nation, they would bring the king into, if it was Rome, they'd bring them in, they'd come behind them. Or if they were in battle, they, they would put the conquering general, whoever would put their foot on the king's neck, saying, I have squashed you, basically. I am over you. I have defeated you. And that's the picture that we're getting here, is that everything has been put under his feet. Everything has been put under his feet. Say that with me. Everything has been put under his feet. So what's been put under his feet? Everything. What are you struggling with? Has it been put under his feet? What is holding you or myself captive? Has it been put under his feet? What is holding you down? Is Jesus victor? And if he is, it's been put under his feet. And we need to recognize that, which means justice reigns, holiness reigns, righteousness reigns. Holiness. When you think of the word holiness, what do you think of? What are some thoughts that come to your mind? Purity? Perfect? Do you kind of get this idea of piety? Of like harps playing somewhere? I don't know where we got that idea, you know, that... I, and I remember just even telling our kids, I think we told them, well, what are we going to do in heaven? And it's like, well, we're going to sing. I was like, oh, forever? Are we going to get to do anything else? You know, do I have to listen to you guys sing the whole time? And we just got this idea of holiness being, you know, this piety, this kind of restrictive life. But really, the idea of holiness is being whole. It, it is being like you were supposed to be. It is actually freedom like you've never known. You see, the idea of holiness is something that is there to bring us out, not hold us in. In verse 28, he goes on, he says, When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, God, who put everything under him so that God be all in all. And after this, he will hand everything over to the Father. Jesus, after he's conquered everything, he's going to hand everything to the Father, and we will be there to witness it. Now, why is this important? This is important, excuse me, this is important because Jesus is represented as our brother. And our brother has conquered. 
we get to go up next to him and say, that's my brother. He, he represents me. You see, Jesus did this as a man. He didn't conquer death as God. He conquered death as the last Adam. He conquered death in our place. He became man so that he could identify with us, so that he could take our penalty and conquer death in our stead. He's our all-star. And when he hands this to God, it's as if you and I are there with him saying, look what we did. We didn't do anything, but we get to be a part of it because he did it. And he did it as our brother. He did it as a human. And so we get to enjoy the benefits because of what Jesus has done. Being subject means he accomplished the work that the son was given. It doesn't mean or take away from his de deity. It doesn't mean he was a created being. It just means that he did what he was supposed to do as a man, and he hands it to God in his rightful place. And then it says that God becomes all in all. God fills everyone and everything. God becomes all in all means that God has control. Things are set right. Things are as they should be. We now get to live without the bondage, without the pull, without the oppression, without those things that pull and drag us down. We get to be free from all those things. And now God is all and he is in all and we are in harmony with God. This is when we are redeemed, we are bought back and and we are enjoying the benefits of what Jesus has done. This is what it's about. This is what heaven really is. It's holiness. It is communion with God. That's the whole idea of holiness, is getting to enjoy God and having God be a part of you and you be a part of him without friction in between. And that's a glorious thing. That's an incredible thing. It means complete freedom. Complete union with God and peace will reign. And Paul is writing here that the resurrection is not just essential to the gospel, but it is defining what the gospel is. It's defining our future, our life in God. God's life now in us. And verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized for them? Anyone have a clue what that means? No? Me either. There's about 30 different ideas of what this could mean. And no one is sure. It goes from anywhere from martyrdom to just this idea that the Corinthians were engaged in this practice and Paul's just kind of saying, that's meaningless. What do you engage with that if that's not even part of your belief? But we don't know. So I'm going to keep going because I don't know what it means. Verse 30, he goes on and he says, And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
And Paul's going to talk about two areas here and in the verses to come. First, where this real future is motivated and empowered him to take huge risks, to do incredible things. The wild beasts that he talks about in Ephesus are those who are out to kill him. People who are out to kill him. Why am I endangering my life if there is no resurrection? If the dead aren't raised, why am I putting myself in peril? Why would I do that if the dead aren't raised, if they're trying to kill me, if they're threatening me? I mean, when Paul went in with this gospel, it was very intimidating. It, it, it threatened their culture. It threatened their economics, some of them who were selling idols for worship. It, it threatened them, and so they brought pressure on him to try and bring him down, and, and so they tried to kill him. But Paul is saying, I don't care. That doesn't matter. I'm still giving 100%. I'm laying my body on the line for this because it's worth it. It's worth it. I love watching sports. We've got baseball season and basketball season going on, and it's great to get to catch a game, especially now the playoffs for basketball season, because the guys step it up. You know, when you're in the playoffs, now you, you dive for the ball, when other times you might let it go. Now everything's on the line, and you get to see these people just giving their all. You know, Gasol's got a bandage because he's got some stitches under his eyes from catching, you know, a head to the cheek. You know, and they're just like doing all these things. And it's like, why are they doing this? Because, man, they want to win the championship. Championship. Paul is saying, I've got life eternal. I get to stand with Jesus and present to God this world back to him. Say, it's yours. We took care of everything that needed to be done. Paul has something a lot better than a world championship that he's living for, and so he's willing to give it all. And this challenges me because when I realize that I'm not giving it all, I have to ask myself, do I really believe that this hope is there for me? Or am I living as if this is it? Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let, let's give ourselves here to the things that we have because this is all you have. You see, if this is real, if Christ is the victory, is the victor, then our victory is sure. And Paul said, if Christ is for us, who can be against us? What shall I fear what man can do to me? You see, there is an abandon that we can give ourselves to God that will secure us, that will make us and we don't realize it but trying to hold on to our freedom we end up just being bound by the things of this world verse 32 when he says if I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord if I fought the wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons what have I gained if the dead are not raised if I've done this just for human sake I've got nothing to show for it but there is more. And this strikes me because I think this idea is very prominent in Western churches. You know, the idea of prosperity has become idolatry. For so many Christians, it's like we, we have to live for our things. 
and we have to have our stuff, and that's how we determine what we're going to do. I don't know how many times in ministry I've heard someone say, the Lord is leading me to this other place, and almost every time it involves more money. And I always wonder, God leads you and it gets you better accommodations. When does God ever lead someone and they take a cut and pay? Or does God only lead people to raises? When God led Paul, it almost cost him his life. But no, God's leading me. Why? There's more money. It, it just it challenges me and makes me wonder, why will I do? Will I give up financial security? Will I give up the prosperity and the things that I can get because God is leading me? And yeah, it's going to cost me, but I'm going to gain so much more. Or is it all about the stuff? Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Because this world means more to me than the hope in the future, we invest our time, our money, and ourselves in ourselves and not to Christ. I read this fascinating book that talks about some studies that were being done and how people give of themselves. And there was in Switzerland a town where they were trying to find a place where they could bury the nuclear waste from the nuclear power plants. And so they asked this community, would it be okay if we bury some of the nuclear waste in the community? It'll be off to this area we have selected. It's going to be helpful to our country. Will you allow us to bury the stuff there? And 56% of the people said yes. And they thought, well, that's pretty good, but we want to try and get more people involved. So they went back and they said, we want to bury this stuff there, and we are going to give you the equivalent of $5,000 a year for the rest of your lives as long as you live there. And the percentage went down. Now, why would it go down? You just said yes, but now when they offered you money, you said no. And what they found out is that certain parts of our brains activate when finances are involved. When it becomes a thing about money, it activates a certain part of our brain. And when it's about something that we have longing for, love for, feel that it's something that is you know, worthwhile, honorable, it activates another portion of our brain. And these two portions of our brain cannot work at the same time. When they put people under you know, the CAT scan and they do these tests to find out which aspect is working, they never work together. It's like they're working on two different fuels and they can't fire at the same time. And I just thought of Jesus' words, you cannot serve God and money. You can't. You will either love the one or you will hate the other or you'll despise the one and cling to the other. You can't do it. And so even though they were offering them money, which was more than they got before, they said no because they couldn't see it as being noble or right, and now it's not worth it. You're going to endanger my family for $5,000 a year? No way. I would do it for national honor, but not for 5000 bucks a year. And I wonder if we are just selling out. I'll serve you, Christ, but I want a bonus and I want a car. And I want security and I want these things. 
and we're firing our fuel in the wrong place. We're expending our energy in the wrong way. We are giving of ourselves in the wrong direction. Well, we know who Jesus is, but our hope is not in the fact that he is alive and has conquered death and is going to bring everything right. Our hope is that we're going to get a raise. Our hope is that I'm going to get healthier, skinnier, have whatever, more of the things that I crave and desire. And again, we invest in ourselves and not in Christ. Remember, we talked about this going through 1 John. In Psalm 119.32, it says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. I have found that if I give myself to you, that's when I'm free. And the more I give, the freer I am. Then why don't I give more? Because maybe I don't really believe that. Maybe my hope is still in the temporary things and not in the eternal things. Closing out in verse 33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This is the second reason he's talking about that holiness and the freedom that comes with holiness. That sin brings a bondage. It brings a bondage because just like that illustration, our mind gets captured and it gets locked into the wrong perspective. We no longer are able to see clearly. And that's why he says, come to your senses. God has this for you. What are you giving up and for what? Why would you give this up and for what? Is it really worth it? Really? Is it enough? You know, and we still want Jesus, but we don't want holiness. And I'm not sure what kind of Jesus that is. And we encounter that a lot where, you know, I want to follow Jesus, but I want to be happy. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want Jesus to, to constrain me in any way. I still want to be able to, you know, whether it's get drunk, smoke pot, have sex with my girlfriend. I, I still want to do all the things that I like to do, but I want to believe in Jesus. I don't know what that Jesus looks like. I, I don't know who that Jesus is. It's some kind of hybrid mutant that doesn't exist. But we want that and we try and transform who Jesus is to meet our images and he can't do that. He won't do that. He loves us too much to allow us to do that. And I want to end just with three questions. One, is our desire for Christ weak? Is our desire for Christ less than what it should be? Seeing who he is, what he's done, is our desire for him matching those things or is it less than? Now, I know I can answer this probably for most of us. We all can say, it's not what it should be. Well, good that we're aware of it. It's good that we see that there's room to move and to push forward and not become complacent in these things. The second thing, you know, we're just too easily satisfied. You know, I, I can, 
if I have popcorn and my TV show, I'm good. And it's like, really? That's going to satisfy you? Where's your desire for Christ? Second is, are our hopes too small? This is a big gospel. This is huge. This is supposed to be something that occupies us completely. Are our hopes too small? Are, are we giving into these things too easily and too readily? And third, what are we going to do about these things? What changes do we need to make? And the first change that needs to always happen is in here. The first change has to begin with our hearts and the recognition, God, you know, my desire for you is too weak. My hopes are in the wrong things. I need to make some priority changes here. I need to give of myself to you more. I need to see things more clearly. I need to, maybe like Paul said, come to my senses. I need to stop sinning. You know, when we think of stop sinning, remember when we were in First John, we talked about sin not being just things that you do wrong. Sin is missing the intent that God has for your life. That God has our lives with intention. Sin is missing that mark. And God has plans for each one of us and we're falling short of it. And, and Paul is telling us, come to your senses, stop sinning. Have more desire for Christ. Have more hope in God. And live your life accordingly so that those things are seen in us and manifest in us. Any questions on these things or, or something that stands out? I mean, I, there's a lot of material here. I couldn't cover it all too in depth, but hopefully I touched on some things that stood out. But is there something that maybe stood out to you that you would like to bring up and share with us? Or have a question? What the heck were you talking about when you said this? <laughs> I might say, I don't know. Nothing? I'll allow one more moment of awkward silence. <laughs> well then, let's pray. Father, this has challenged me, and I pray it's challenged all of us. The example we have in Paul and the example that you have given us yourself, Jesus, has challenged us to the core of our being. And God, you, you've made it so clear that anything less than giving our lives to you is not really worship. But true worship is that surrender of our will to you. And we desire to be people of worship, Lord. And Lord, we desire to honor you with our lives and help us to see those areas that we are deficient in. Those things that we are maybe too entangled with. Maybe we are not seeing the big picture. We are not putting our hope in the right things. We do not really see our lives as maybe ending, but we try and 
think of ourselves as living here for the rest of eternity. And God, wake us up. Help us to see how important these things are, that you being alive is what gives us hope for the future. It would, it's what gave us freedom from death. Lord, you are victor, and you allow us to enjoy the spoils of your victory. May we live our lives accordingly. I do thank you again for your faithfulness, God, your patience with me, Lord, and, and constantly bring me back to that place when I, I start to complain and I start to murmur, and you say, are you going to follow me or not? And Lord, you give me the freedom to choose, and like Peter, Lord, you only have the words of life. Where else can I go? Lord, I don't want anything else but you. And whatever the cost, God, may I be willing to count it. Lord, may I be willing to not look back and put my hand back on the plow, but to press on forward to the things that you have and have hope in you. And I do pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.